0: You're listening to the English Ministry podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. Um, it has been two years. Um, Curtis clearly has forgotten how I did last time because uh, it took him two years to invite me to come back. But uh, so can thank God that he's uh, forgetting. It, it has been fun to have to meet Jimmy again. Um, His parents, Steve and Kathy, who worked with Crew for many years, were actually supported by the church I pastored up in Santa Margarita, just north of San Luis Obispo. Um, And he's with Pioneers, and what we didn't talk about yet is that my sister and her husband are just going to start working with Pioneers in a few weeks, going to move to Orlando after being in Southern California all those years, uh, because Paul brings some very specific um, experience having to do with some kind of software, so we'll see. But anyway, they're moving to Orlando to help. The missionaries do what they need to do so that uh, they can focus on that. We are going to be in Psalm 139 this morning, so I hope you'll turn there with me. Um, I have been, besides reading through the Bible in a year, uh, this year I've been focusing a lot, and the last year, in the Psalms. Uh, I don't know if it's a product of age, but I'm just finding some real encouragement in the Psalms. And So we're going to be in Psalm 139 this morning. Uh, The other thing I've been watching, particularly in the United States, is that Americans, even Americans who are Christian, um, have put themselves in a very dangerous situation. Uh, And by that I mean the vision has become blurred where we've begun to be convinced that our strength is in our system of government rather than in God Almighty. And I'm all for voting. I hope we all go out and vote and that we're involved that way. Uh, but one of the things that has helped me is just, again, see, my vote, they're asking for my opinion. And I will go in the booth and give them my opinion as to who should serve or laws that be ought, ought to be enacted. But once I step out of that booth, I've expressed my opinion, but I can't control that stuff. God, on the other hand, never steps off the throne. So whatever's going on is part of some bigger plan. We're going to look at that in Psalm 139. But it was about 185 years ago that Alexis de Tocqueville... Uh, a Frenchman came to the United States, looked around at this experiment, um, and he said, uh, here's where we're going to see if we can do the, uh, advance the slide. Oh, that's not it. We'll go the other way. You had that problem, too. Jimmy. I feel I'm in good company. There we go. Each citizen is habitually engaged in the contemplation of a very puny object, namely himself. So uh, some things have not changed in 185 years. And then 45 years ago, Wendell Berry wrote, the sovereignty that crossed the surf onto the shore of the new world was a new sovereignty. They began the era of absolute human sovereignty, which is to say the era of absolute human presumption. An infinitely greedy sovereign is afoot in the universe, staking his claims, meaning us. We feel like we ought to control every aspect of our own lives. And then 35 years ago, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Uh, came to the United States, and he said, we have placed too much hope in politics and social reforms only to find out that we were being deprived of our most precious possession, our spiritual life. It is trampled by the party mob in the East and by the commercial one in the West. Now, after that introduction, you may feel somewhat like the Born Loser characters, Sigh. He said, I've given up wishing my dreams would come true. Now I just hope that my nightmares won't. Um, and it doesn't matter where you are in the political spectrum. Everybody, it seems, in America today is doing one of three postures. One is they're either wringing their hands in worry, right? I don't know what's going to happen. What comes next? Or they're throwing up their hands in desperation, saying they're, this place is out of control, and I don't know what to do about it. Or they're folding their hands in prayer. So again, one of the upsides of our current situation, I think, in the United States is that for many, it has forced them to pray. It's like the group that got together, a group of Christians, and things were out of control in their church, and finally after hours of meeting, somebody said, we ought to pray. And the other guy turned to him and said, has it come to that? Because we tend to go there last, as opposed to going there first. And the psalm we're going to look at this morning, uh, Psalm 139, is again, one of the collection of the 150 psalms. There are basically five major types of psalms. Psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of lament or confession. Actually, most of them are that. So if you are, in your quiet moments, just bemoaning your own life or the life of the people around you or the country you're in, you're in good company, because most of the psalms are psalms of lament. Life is not as we expected, but our God has not changed. There's psalms of wisdom. And then the royal psalms. And we're going to be a psalm of praise this morning. And it's uh, a matter of four stanzas. They each have six uh, verses in them. The first four primarily are describing something true about God. And then the last two are some sort of response on the part of the psalmist. The first one, <clears throat> excuse me, the first one is verses one through six, the first stanza. <coughs> excuse me. No virus that I know of. Um, uh, is describing that God is very smart. In fact, He is so smart, he knows everything. Verse 1, O Yahweh, and I have this thing about the English version, especially in the Hebrew Scriptures, whenever it's using a very specific name of God, Yahweh, Adonai, Elohim. um, I just go ahead and translate it into that because I think the psalmist, because he had a number of names to choose from, as a poet who has worked and reworked his poetry, wants to be very specific about what aspect of God are we looking at. Yahweh, you will remember, is the covenant name of God, the one who is to his people everything that he is. Yahweh, right? I am that I am. I will be to my people everything that I am. I'm the promise-making, promise-keeping God. That's the one he wants to highlight here. Oh, Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, the one who is to me everything that you are, you know it all together. I discovered that this word searched, when it says that God, you have searched me, is the same word that's used when uh, Joshua and Caleb go into the land and spy out the land. Right? They didn't go to the edge of the border and just kind of look in and go, well, it looks okay. Right? They, they went into the land. They wanted to check it out to see what this is really about. Who's there? Who's not there? What do we need to know about this? It was also a word that was used of mining. And again, in mining, you just keep digging until you find what you're looking for. But notice this list. He knows what we do. He knows what we think. He knows where we go. And he knows what we say. Now, my question to you is, does that make you feel good about the character of God, that he knows all of that about you? Is that a comfort and an encouragement? Or is that kind of a challenge that he would know all those things? And again, in the Hebrew, this word know is an intimate knowledge. It's not just being aware of the facts. It says, Adam knew Eve, back in the King James anyway, and she conceived, all right? So that's a pretty intimate kind of knowledge that he knew his wife and she conceived. It's that kind of awareness, not only of the facts, but of the relationship. Where are we in this relationship? In his classic book on the attributes of God, Gleanings in the Godhead, A.W. Pink writes, God knows everything, everything possible, everything actual, all events, all creatures of the past, the present and the future. He's perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven in earth and in hell nothing escapes his notice nothing can be hidden from him nothing is forgotten by him he never errs never changes never looks overlooks anything so again i ask how does that make you feel right he never forgets anything he knows not only what happened but what could have happened all the actuals and the possibles david goes for this response in the next verse, he says, You hem me in, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. What he says is uh, this, this knowledge that God has of me actually brings me comfort. And that knowledge actually builds some hems around me. As Curtis mentioned, I've served a number of years with the Evangelical Free Church, uh, basically pastoring Pastors. Now my ministry is to first through eighth graders as a substitute teacher in the public school system in Bakersfield. Yes, I am a substitute teacher. But that's my ministry. Those school districts are actually paying me to be an example of Christ in the public school rooms, right? I don't often get a chance to put words to the music, but I hope they're at least hearing the music so that at the point when I can put lyrics to that, I have a relationship that allows me to talk about Jesus. That's currently my role. And I say that by way of encouragement to all the rest of you. Because we have this tendency in the American church anyway to think, oh, to be a pastor, to be a full-time minister in a local church. That's kind of the, the, the epitome, the apex of what you want to do. But all of us are called to ministry. And my ministry now has stopped being that pastoring to pastors thing, but I'm still in ministry. Larry Osborne, one of our pastors, has said to a lot of us as pastors, look, you will always be a pastor, but at some point no church is going to want to pay you to do that. Right? I mean, we just kind of finally get to that age or that stage, and they say, no, we're going to move somewhere else, on to something else, right? But does that mean our ministry stops? It better not. Because, in fact, God has called all of us To be ministers where we are. To do a really good job at whatever they're really paying you for. But also to recognize that God has put me there to be a representative. And so he has built these these hems, these fences, these places that we are to function. And that ought to be a comfort to us. Paul responds very similarly as he finishes uh, chapter 11 in what we call the book of Romans or the letter to the church at Rome. He's considering God's plan of salvation for both the Jew and the Gentile. The fact that God knows the end from the beginning ought to be a comforting and an encouraging knowledge of this God that loved us enough to send his son. The next thing that in the psalm the next stanza is 7 through 12 and once again David begins with a description. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Now those, I was a CE major in seminary. I didn't want to take Greek and Hebrew. So, uh, but those who understand the Hebrew tell me that those there, you are there, is not in the Hebrew. It's just you. So read it like this. If I asc- ascend to heaven, you. If I go to Sheol, you. Right? In other words, everywhere I turn, you. Right? You are right there. And so I get why the translators want to put you are there, but it's just that, it's almost that startlingness. I I go to heaven and you. I I go to Sheol, the, the place after death. You, wherever I go, you. The public school system, a local church, a welder, whatever it is you do, when you go there, you. God is there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall guide me. What David is getting at it, god is very big in fact he's so big that he's everywhere we are that's how big he is and some have suggested that david finds god being everywhere present a little disconcerting right no matter where i go you're there but i think it's an awful lot like when i was growing up when i was being a good boy i liked having my parents around when i was being a naughty boy I didn't want my parents anywhere near where I was, especially in my teen years, but that's a story for another time. But that's, I I think that plays in here too. Again, for David, he finds it comforting that God is there, but I would imagine, as you read in his Psalms of Confession, that when he realized his own sinfulness, he wasn't so excited about the fact that God was there wherever he was. Why is it that with God, we feel his absence at the very time we want his presence, for, action, for instance, when we're depressed or distressed, right? We want his presence, but he's not there, it seems. And we feel his presence at the very time that we most want his absence, for instance, when we're sinning, right? It's, it is that brokenness of us that the difference in whether or not we want to be aware of his presence has to do with what's going on internally. We're going to see that again as we get to the end of this song, but look at his Response, I cannot escape God's presence. Look at verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, right? So then God can't find me. And the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Someone suggested that the only way to run from God is to run to God, Right? When we feel like, I don't want to be aware of God's presence. That's the time we need to make ourselves aware of his presence. Because he's the one who provides forgiveness. The third stanza begins in verse 13. And here he's gonna, David's going to talk about God being very strong. He moves from God's omniscience, that is that he knows everything. And his omnipresence, that he's everywhere. To his omnipotence, that is he can do Anything. I always try to put this caveat in because theology matters. That is, he can do anything that's in keeping with his character. Right? That's his only limitation. It has to be congruent with who he really is as a holy, righteous God. Look at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. See how he also blends God's omniscience in there? He knows everything. Now, the psalmist could have used the universe to talk about how very strong God is. He alludes to that in Psalm 8. When I consider the heavens the work of your hands, what is man that you're mindful of him? But instead of going to the bigness of the universe to show the power of God, he goes to that moment of conception when a very small egg meets a very small sperm and begins a life. And God is so strong that he can guide that life from that moment to the moment of death. So rather than going very big to show his strength, he shows how small God can work and still make something amazing. Isaac Newton said, in the absence of any other proof, the thumb alone would convince me of God's existence. How many of you have ever noticed that in the old cartoons they all had four fingers? You know why? Why? Cartoonists couldn't draw a thumb that looked natural. They just couldn't do it. They're getting there with CG now, but that's another story. Dr. Paul Brand, who worked for many years with lepers, said, I don't know of a single operation anyone has devised that succeeded in improving a normal hand. That's how amazing and how strong God's creation is. Now, I want to mention, because last Sunday was the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, that often when we go to Psalm 139 and we we think about the life of the unborn, because that's the the example he uses here of God's strength, but I want to suggest to you that as followers of Jesus, we need to honor all life, not only the preborn, but those who have grown into people that we don't necessarily like or agree with or who vote the way we do or live lives the way we think they ought to live. They too need to be treated with respect and honored as being created in the image of God. Now look at David's response in verse 17. He says, how precious are your thoughts, O Elohim. Elohim is the name for the strong God. As I often said to my children, I will make you promises and I will do my best to keep them. But I'm not all powerful. And usually when David is talking about promises, he uses this name Elohim because it means the strong God who can actually keep His promises because He's got the goods. He's able to. He's strong enough. He's smart enough. He's thoughtful enough to keep His promises. He says, How precious are your thoughts to me, O Elohim! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they would be more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. That is, that God thinks about us even when we're not thinking about God. Right, And in the Hebrew day, it begins at sundown. So think about that. They begin their day going to sleep when they can't really do anything that would impress God. And about half of their day, this is again before modern lights and technology and trying to get those last few emails in, but they would begin their day saying, I'm going to lay down and sleep. And you're going to be aware of what's going on. The world will keep spinning. And then when they awake the next morning, and there's a lot of morning psalms in this collection of psalms, it's like, Okay, God, you've been busy all night when I have been absolutely worthless to you. Now, as I go into my day, I'd love to join you in what you're already doing because I know what you're doing is right and good and I want to align myself with what you're doing. The last one is found in God is very good and it won't sound like it when we get to verse 19, but it's a contrast thing. Poets do that sort of thing. He says... Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O Elohim. Again, the strong one, right? The one who, who's got the right hand of strength. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Yahweh, the one who is to me everything that you are, the one who makes and keeps to your promises? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? You see, the, the enemy there is against God, Not against David personally, right? David feels the the results of a lot of that, but the enemy is really their enmity is against God, not against his children. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, this is poetry, and so again, we need to be careful. God even says, Esau I have loved, Jacob I, I mean, Esau I have hated, Jacob I loved, right? It's a contrast. But the heart of it is God. I want to be aligned with your character because you are so good that you're perfect. And I see, by contrast, the people around me are not. That, in fact, there are some who actually oppose you, who think they ought to live their life their own way and not even have you as part of the equation. So I think what happens here, by contrast, is that David, as he's been, in the first 18 verses, been contemplating God's perfections, he looks around and says, but but people aren't like you. We're all broken. We all walk with a limp. None of us are righteous. Not one, as we find out not only in the Hebrew Scriptures, but in the New Testament. And by the way, this is a very difficult stanza, because it's part of that, what we call the imprecatory Psalms. There's one that comes later in the collection that says, may their, my enemy's babies' heads be dashed against the rocks, right? Doesn't sound very Christian. Doesn't sound very nice right? Because David sees what being against God ends up producing, not only individually, but as a culture. It says, in essence, would you make it stop? One of the things that I think we need to vote, notice there in verse 19 is, oh, that you would slay the wicked. I mean, David's a king. He's got an army, but it's not like, let's go out and fight these guys. He's saying, God, would you do something about this? Because they empty God's name of its significance. That's what it means when it says, take your name in vain. You know, in the Ten Commandments, I grew up in a tradition where not taking the Lord's name in vain meant you don't swear. Right? You don't use bad words. But as I begin to study it, that's not what vain means. It means empty. And basically, it's more of a call that our lives would not make empty who God really is. That when people would look at us, they would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you keep telling me about this great God you know and worship, and then I look at your life, and it's like, they don't match. Now, that's going to be true to some extent with all of us, right, because all of us continue to sin and fall short of God's glory. But these people have actively begun to just empty God's name of its significance by the choices they make. It's so clear so what do you do with verses like do good to those who despitefully use you? Love your enemies. I mean, even Peter, and I, I was in a home group. We studied this verse for about four, or five, maybe six weeks trying to figure out what does that mean? Because it's honor, that is to prize or value everyone. And that was the part we couldn't get past as a home group, right? Everyone? I'm supposed to value everyone? What about, right? And we'd all we begin to create our list of those people that certainly don't deserve it. But Peter says, no, no, no. And this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just as much as everything else that's in Scripture. Honor everyone. Love, and there's the word agape, right? Unconditionally love the brotherhood. That is your brothers and sisters in Christ. So you unconditionally love them, but you at least honor and prize everyone. Right? Fear, that is reverence, revere, hold highly God and honor, same word as in the first part of verse 17, the emperor. Well, read the history of the Roman Empire. That's got to have been hard to do at times, right? Because these emperors were not very friendly to Christianity. And yet, Christianity flourished, even under the emperors. So having put evil people into a category that is in such contrast with the character of God, I want you to notice what David does in his response. But first, I want to go back to the very first verse of this psalm, because it began with, actually, that's supposed to be verse one." Oh Yahweh, you have searched me and know me. Did David ask for this searching and knowing? No, but God's doing it. But now notice what he does in verse 23. He says, search me. O strong God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. See what David does there? He's got a whole paragraph, an imprecatory psalm, right? Kill them all, God, and then you sort them out, because these people are wicked and nasty, and you need to do something about this. But notice what his response to that is? he now invites the very process that he said has already been ongoing, that God searches him and knows him, but now it's a personal invitation on David's part. God, would you search me and know my heart? Try me and know my thoughts? Because how easily I can become like those described in the first part of this stanza. Those who empty God's name of its significance by the choices they make, and the words they use, and the way they relate to the people around them. It becomes an invitation, not just an acknowledgement of God's knowledge. And he wants to make sure if there's something going on in him that leads him the direction that he's just described, he wants God to do something about it. He wants to get rid of it and lead him in ways that are everlasting. I want to go to Alexander McLaren. Who writes, it's not mere omniscience, that is knowing everything, but it's a knowledge which knows him, that is David the psalmist, altogether. It's not mere omnipresence, being everywhere, but a presence which he, David, can nowhere escape. Not mere creative power, but a power which shaped him. That is what fills and thrills the psalmist's soul. This is not just dry theology. For David, this is something that encourages and comforts and challenges him because of who God is and who David is in relationship with him. Which brings me to the two words, if you remember from two years ago, I always either do now what or so what. Because I think God's word ought to make a difference in how we live. It also signifies he's almost done. Good, if I just hold on a couple more minutes. But as remember at the beginning I said we can either throw up our hands in exasperation, we can wring our hands with worry, or we can pray. As you pray this week, I want to suggest a couple of things. The first is we need to talk to God about his character and about our character. You get that? I think as we talk to God this next week that we ought to talk to him about his character, but also about our own character, where we are in relationship to him. But then as we talk to others, I think we need to talk to them about God's character and about their character. And maybe start by talking about your own character, your own personal struggles. If we're not transparent with people, at least be translucent, right? Remember shower doors? you can just kind of, you know, there's somebody in there, right? You just don't want too many details. But enough to know there's somebody there, right? But I think we need to be translucent with people to say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. But I still have these struggles that go on, and which is why I continue to try and be in contact with God through prayer, through fellowship with other believers, through reading God's Word where He has revealed Himself. So again, as we talk to others, I think we need to talk to them about God's character because He's the one who never changes. I change. He doesn't. But I think we need to talk to them about our own character as well as their character. How's that working for you? The life that you have set out ahead and thought, this is it. Where has that led you to? And isn't it possible that God wanted something different or something more for you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that David sat and penned this song. I don't know how many rewrites he took as he communed with your Holy Spirit, but he gave us a a masterpiece describing who you are and who we are in relationship with you. Father, this is not a dusty song. This is a a song for today. In the circumstances, not only in this country, but in Pakistan and every other country in the world where people need to know you and follow you and allow you to make the changes that need to be made because you are the one true God. May we never lose sight of that. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.